Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's that time of year when many people enjoy feeling scared. Halloween has become a month-long celebration. And as we near the actual date of the holiday, today we have some arts and culture seasonal treats. City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us on a ghost tour to the oldest city in the metro Atlanta area, Lawrenceville. Later this hour, we'll hear her audio postcard. First, double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Macbeth, for your ears only. For some audiophiles, the sounds, voices, and music of theater are the best part. This Halloween season, the immersive audio producers knock at the gate, invite us to gather our headphones and dim our lights for an all-audio experience of Shakespeare's chilling tragedy of Macbeth. With award-winning voice actors and thrilling sound design, listeners will experience total immersion into Macbeth's haunting tale of treachery, madness, and political catastrophe. Knock at the Gate produced Macbeth in collaboration with multiband studios and will broadcast the experience October 28th through November 7th. Sean Hudak is producer and co-founder of Knock at the Gate. He joins me now via Zoom with Theatre Emery Artistic Director and actor January Lavoie, who plays Lady Macbeth. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you, Lois. What an unusual way to experience Shakespeare. Please tell us more of what to expect in this form of sonic theater. Well, one thing I'll say is that by way of introduction to how this project came about, Sean and his producing partner, Joe, who is Joe Disher, who is also our director, had approached me about doing a previous production with Knock at the Gate 
which was a production of Caesar that was done, Sean, was it in April? It, yeah, well, it was in May. May. We recorded it in March and designed in April. And so in order to enlist me, <laughs> they <laughs> sent some samples of the previous production that they had done. And I have to tell you, Lois, my expectations were not super high oh. uh, because we had all been doing, you know, sort of Zoom theater and, and trying to figure out how we could still do theater. And as many people know, a lot of it wasn't terribly satisfying. And so when they sent me these sound files, I thought, well, I'll give it a listen. And they were very explicit about the instructions to put in headphones and dim the lights. And I thought, okay, I'll play along. And within 45 seconds, I knew that I was listening to something that I had not heard before. I was totally engaged. A, a lot of folks have described the experience as just feeling like you're there. One character was talking in one ear, the other character was talking in my other ear, and I really truly had the experience of feeling like I was in the scene with them and sort of powerless to do anything about it. So when we say the word immersive, I think that really is the word we want to hang on to when we talk about what people should expect to experience. It is a truly immersive experience. How did Knock at the Gate and Multiband become collaborators? Well, I'll say that the production is a co-production with Theatre Emery and Multiband. And January, after we had done Caesar, approached Joe and, and myself and really wanted to figure out a way to bring whatever we had done to her students at Emory. You know, just knowing that there were so many question marks about how the next couple of months or the rest of the year, rather, were, were going to sort of play out. So that was sort of how the conversations began. And I think what, what really excited us about working with Theodore Emery and students, of course, particularly with Shakespeare, was that we're also still figuring out this process of how to record in isolation with actors who are on different coasts and, you know, connecting into each other via Zoom and, you know, figuring out how that process, that sort of that remote process can can kind of be smoothed out a little bit. So this was as much of, you know, us creating a project as it was sort of us going back to school um, in a lot of ways and sort of learning how to do this because really, I mean, we're all sort of in uncharted territory with the digital theater hybrid, as January uh, explained. So many people were, you know, exploring it over the pandemic and continue to explore it. You know, we were just very lucky to, you know, have this avenue to continue exploring it. The multiband aspect, Lois, came in because they were actually, I met multiband while I was working on Fires in the Mirror at Theatrical Outfit last spring. And they created this incredible soundscape and they were so instrumental in figuring out, for folks who may not have been able to see or experience that theatrical outfit produced a live streaming theater event uh, of a play called Fires in the Mirror by Anna DeVere Smith, which I performed last spring. And they were basically running live audio through the stream of the play as I was performing it in the theater and sending it out to the world. So I thought they'd be a great group to collaborate with on this particular project. January, in addition to your career in film and stage acting, you are an acclaimed voice actor with a Lifetime Achievement Award from Audiophile and even a Grammy you share with the cast of the audiobook for Charlotte's Web. 
You were Charlotte, by the way. I was. <laughs> are, are there differences in the way you approach voice acting in contrast to stage acting? Yes and no. I do want to clarify it was a Grammy nomination. Rachel Maddow was the one who won it uh, for her book. But uh, Mer Meryl and I, you know, uh, dried our tears together. <laughs> oh, oh, Meryl Streep. You could dry your tears with someone less talented. I'll try for next time. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the Charlotte's Web was, was an extraordinary experience. And that was a full cast and really just a wonderful time. It's interesting, the question, because what I've learned sort of from other people's input is that my career as an audiobook narrator and a voice actor has made me a better theater actor. How so? The specificity of the way that you have to lock into storytelling when you're working in long form audio, I think is really instructive to the stage actor because there's a, a level on which you have to drill down into the language because the language is all you have. And I think a lot of times, you know, theater is a medium of words and language. Film and television are, are mediums of, of image. But I think a lot of times as theater actors, we lose sight of the fact that it's a medium of language. You know, there's a lot of temptation to, to do a lot, to fill the space. We're all trained that way. And that's all very important and, and all well and good. But ultimately, it's a medium of, of words and language and ideas. And it's just given me incredible clarity on how to lift up language and story for an audience. So I've been really grateful for the interface between those two aspects of my career. Oh, that's beautiful. Do you still think about your body and physical presence when doing a voice-only performance? I always tell people that Audiobook narration is one of the most athletic endeavors I've ever experienced as an actor. Really? Which really sounds, you know, kind of bonkers, I guess. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is that the breath that you have to engage to sit in a chair for seven hours a day and read a book in a way that feels alive and engaged and inhabit all the characters I feel stronger. I feel that I have more stamina. You know, I always tell people when I, when I coach audiobooks, I always tell people, well, if you're really interested in doing this as a job, what you should do is grab your favorite book and sit in a chair for one full hour. Don't move because you can't make any sounds other than your voice, no rustling sounds or, you know, and just sit there and read it aloud for one hour. And if you think you'd like to do that seven or eight hours a day, then we can talk about moving you into a career as a narrator. But there is this real, you know, sort of athletic bellows effect of the, the lungs and the diaphragm and the engagement of the body that can be a little exhausting. But again, sort of channeling all of that energy into the words and the voices is, is exciting. How did you create the voice of Lady Macbeth? Did your previous experience with Shakespeare serve you in this role? Lois, I've waited my whole life to play this role. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one that got away from me. And maybe not. Maybe I'll, I, I, I still have uh, perhaps a stage Lady M in me at some point. But I've loved this role since I was a teenager. And so the voice just was ready. She just came out of me. And because I was also acting with many of my students, we have eight students, Emory, wonderful Emory students in this cast. 
I think I felt a real responsibility to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, and give the fullest possible uh, exploration of the character that I could. And, you know, there's, there's a real safety in a, and a real comfort in, as Sean mentioned, you know, we recorded this in isolation. We're still living through the pandemic. Our rules on campus are still incredibly strict. And so no one was ever in the same room recording because in order to take off our masks, we had to be isolated. So everyone was watching on Zoom, everyone who was in the scene, but you're, you're by yourself recording. And so having that really intimate relationship with the microphone and not feeling watched means you can really just get in there and engage your whole body and, and live the experience as much as you can. I'm intrigued with going back to your teenage years about why Lady Macbeth is such a favorite of yours. January, I have to say, knowing you personally a bit, you are so not Lady Macbeth. <laughs> I thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> that is reassuring. <laughs> it's the language. And we talked about this a lot these past few weeks as we were working on it. I think she has some of the most extraordinary language in the canon of Shakespeare. I think he gave her some of his best. And so to be able to speak those words with that intention, it's really transporting. And maybe it is that, that I'm sort of so far away from her that being able to sort of slip into her skin just feels incredibly liberating and thrilling. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with actor January LeBoy and Knock at the Gates, Sean Huddock. Sean, you are an actor as well as producer and co-founder of Knock at the Gate, and you've contributed voice acting to your immersive productions in the past. Are you playing a character in the Macbeth experience? No, I, I love these projects so much and i love watching them evolve that i i really wanted to take a back seat in in this project and of course offer a, a student the opportunity to do this i didn't feel like i necessarily you know wanted to, to to take that away from a student but part of what i've loved and sort of to speak to a lot of what january was saying is that i grew up being trained in Shakespeare. I've worked with Joe on many Shakespeare plays, you know, throughout my career. I've seen January. She's an amazing actress uh, and on top of a, an interpreter, of, a amazing interpreter of Shakespeare. You know, I, I feel like I've, I've immersed myself in, in Shakespeare for so long. And there was always sort of a little bit of, um, I mean, I, I loved it, but there was always just like, you know, like a, a, a disconnect or, or, or something that, you know, it, it just, it didn't feel totally personal to me until, we, I started working on these projects with Joe and really understanding that when folks would say to you that Shakespeare is all about the language, it's completely true. And it's true because Shakespeare was uh, writing for an audience who were, you know, he didn't necessarily have the visual spectacle to rely on. He was writing for an audience who were used to hearing plays and used to communicating with language and the, you know, the, the, the specificity of sounds. And so, you know, Shakespeare put all of that into his plays and it didn't dawn on me, you know, like the, the truly the power of his language until I sat in the dark the first time that we had done a project, and it was, I think, one of the witches seen in a in Macbeth, I I literally felt like 
someone was breathing on my neck. It was just that, you know, and goosebumps. And I just thought like, what, you know, not to pat anybody on the back, but like we, we kind of like discovered something that was, you know, we'd all been working on Shakespeare for so long and suddenly it was like activated. We were like, this is great. And we were passing the work along to so many other people. Anyway, all of that to say, being sort of on the producer side of things is just as exciting to watch these pieces develop and to watch this language turn into something that you don't even have to really try. It's just automatically activated in your imagination. It's kind of weird, but you know, when we're doing these recordings, I'm sitting in the dark or in, in black light, so people can kind of see me, but I'm listening to everything in the dark, which I know sounds a little creepy, but I mean, I know that there is scientific research that I've been looking into that has been studying the the effects of darkness on sound and how we interpret sound. And your hearing is actually peaked in darkness. So that's why we ask people to listen in the dark to these projects, not so that they don't use their phones or anything, but really so that they can be completely even more immersed so that their ears can be even more activated and in tuned to the language that you know Shakespeare's given us. Would you tell us about some of the other characters and the voices that bring them to life? Sure. Well, playing my husband, the second most important character in the play, uh, is the incredible Joel De La Fuente, who is a wonderful actor who lots of folks would know from various television shows and has done a ton of theater, a ton of Shakespeare. And when Joe suggested him for this role, I just was instantaneously just so thrilled and excited. Joel and I had not worked together before, but I had admired his work for a very long time. And he's been an absolute dream. The two of us keep talking about how we can't wait to do this on stage at some point, someday, we hope. But we really, you know, I really want to focus on this incredible cadre of student actors that we have in the cast, because I think that there's been a sort of collective sadness, you know, for for many folks, and I think particularly for students, students of all kinds, who've really struggled through their educational experiences for the last year and a half. But theater kids have really had it tough. (laughs) Um, It's really been so hard to be separated from this thing that sort of gives you life. And to be able to give them at least some sense of we're going to do this and it's going to be complete. It's not going to get canceled. (laughs) We're not going to have to do it in masks. We're going to do this production. They all just were so excited and so up for it and really just arrived with a sense of ownership over the project and real enthusiasm. So I'd like to name them if that's okay with you. I was going to ask (laughs) if you would. Yes, Uh, so we have Brant Adams as Malcolm, John Sai as Lennox, Edith Kwan playing all three of the Weird Sisters, Emma Lee in various roles, including Donald Bain and Flance, Emery McLaughlin as Lady Macduff, Jake Schneider as the porter, the first murderer in various roles, including Satan. He would be very upset if I didn't say that. Um, (laughs) Jessica Wang as the gentlewoman and the servant, and Madison Yates as Ross and the third murderer. And they are extraordinary. So I can't wait for people to experience them. I loved hearing you talk about the immersive experience and how it strengthened you as an actor and the joy you take in just 
highlighting the language of Shakespeare in this format. At WABE, we're clearly fond of audio, (laughs) working in radio as we do. And I must say the sound design of this production is very impressive. Besides bringing in talented voice actors, where do you source your sound effects? The atmospheric background sounds and the sounds of action and movement. Well, the important thing that, that, that we always try to keep in mind, again, is that the language is the most important thing. So whatever soundscape is created has to support in some way the language. It always helps to source from an organic place, to source from actual wind sounds, to source from actual footsteps, to source from wind and rain, all of those effects. The sound designer, of course, is responsible for putting all of those elements together. The soundscape ends up becoming a little bit of an orchestral piece in a way, that the thunder will will support a particular beat or a moment, or you know the rain will come in and out at a, at, at a certain point. So it, it, it's all very sort of carefully choreographed. So while sound effects are are important, it's also important to to, to listen to the sounds of the words and the language and see and and, the, and those moments and see how sound effects can support those moments and you know support transporting us into those moments as well. The Knock at the Gate website says the company was quote born over a bonfire in the pandemic. I'm intrigued. Would, would you tell us the origin story of the project? Sure, yeah. It actually starts before that bonfire. I was listening to uh, some good friends over in, in Texas, over at Amphibian Stage, which is a, a, a terrific company over there. I've worked with them. They, during the pandemic, produced an immersive audio play. Um, and the play had been written to be done in the dark. So they started this this whole obsession of mine of like listening to plays, aud- immersive audio plays in the dark. And I listened to this project, sat in my bathtub and was just like, what the heck did I just experience? I mean, I've never, I'd, I'd never been transported like that before. And so, you know, fast forward a couple weeks and my friend Joe Disher, the director of this project and my uh, collaborator at Knock at the Gate, we were sitting around a bonfire in his backyard and we were sort of talking about, let's figure out something something to do. And we both at that moment sort of had the, the same idea of let's let's do Macbeth and, you know, let's maybe do it as a fundraiser for the Actors Fund. And, you know, maybe we don't do it like a Zoom play because I can't even figure out how to use Zoom. <laughs> and Dieter <laughs> chose the same way. So, like, maybe it's an audio play. We really had no idea what we were getting into at all. And so I reached out to a couple sound designer friends and they, I, you know, asked them what, uh, you know, how, how to do this. And they offered some some suggestions. We had no money whatsoever. We were just really asking a lot of favors of our of our friends and sound designers and asking what we ended of realizing were humongous favors. I mean, these projects really are deceptively big. And so that's how it sort of started. The idea of doing these projects in the dark started around a bonfire, which is how theater started. It started as a bunch of, you know, nomadic folks getting together and sitting around a, a bonfire and telling the stories of the hunt, in images on cave walls and that, 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 that sort of thing. So in some ways, we were kind of returning to our, our OG roots in storytelling and, you know, saying, how can we kind of recreate this idea of sitting around a bonfire? 
you know, sitting around the bonfire in the dark and telling stories or listening to stories. We've had a couple of listeners from past projects, one of whom is up in, in Canada, and he's sent us this amazing um, message that he loves these projects. He's completely transported by them. He sits in his backyard in the dark and listens to them. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's sort of really a really nice, you know, full circle moment. So we say born over a bonfire because in the back of our, our minds, maybe that's where we want people to be listening as well. That's where it started. Oh, you mentioned benefits, previous experiences produced by Knock at the Gate and multi-band help benefit the Actors Fund and relief grants for arts workers during the pandemic. Is charity a big part of your mission at Knock at the Gate? Yes. And I, I, I don't know if charity is necessarily the, the right phrase because I, I think the first project we, we did because we, we wanted to help. In some ways, we saw that a community was building around these projects who also wanted to help. I don't want to really step on a, a soapbox here, but I will say that there are many, many people who wanted to help and who, who did help artists over the pandemic. And there are many people who didn't. And so I will say that as long as I can be producing or, or, or have the ability to produce work, any, any of my work will in some way strive to give back because unfortunately there are still too many people who are hurting because of this situation that we've all gone through. So I hope that charity can always be a, a part of this. This particular project doesn't benefit the Actors Fund, but I think our future projects certainly will have some component of, of fundraising involved. I think art should be sort of multifaceted and, of course, always a political act. Legend has it that Macbeth is cursed. <laughs> yes, to this very day, though I say to this very minute, there are actors who won't say its name. They call it the Scottish play. I'd love to know, is an all-audio production your way of cheating the curse of Macbeth? Oh, Lois, how I wish that were possible. But as, <laughs> as Sean and I can tell you, this production has been as cursed as any production of Macbeth has ever been, because every production of Macbeth is cursed. All you have to do is imagine what it's like to be working on a piece of theater with some time pressure, and you're mostly relying on Zoom as <laughs> your way of communicating and rehearsing, and you have to worry about various people's internet. I mean, at one, didn't we have a day, Sean, when the internet went down at Emory University? Yeah, it, it just uh, is so, like, <laughs> just throw your hands up in the air and... Oh, 21st century toil and trouble. Yes, exactly. Indeed. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, but here's the thing, Lois, is if it was easy, everyone would do That's it. That's right. I hope everyone does it, because, you know, we need more of this. Most of us who are seasoned... Shakespeare folk go into any production of Macbeth just knowing we're in for it and hoping we survive it. <laughs> and I, I feel that we've, uh, we've achieved both of those goals. So I'm just thrilled to, uh, to have made it to the other side. <laughs> oh, performers and superstition, where yes. would we be without each other? I know it's from a different work by the Bard, but one of my 
favorite quotes is, many are the uses of adversity. Yes, yes. It's all about creative problem solving, really, and knowing that no problem is too big to be over overcome. That was Sean Haddock, actor, producer, and co-founder of Knock at the Gate, along with Atlanta-based actor and director of theater, Emery January Lavoy. Their all-audio immersive experience of Shakespeare's play Macbeth is designed for headphones and a dark room. It streams on knockatthegate.com starting tomorrow, October 28th, and runs through November 7th. You can find out more on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll hear about the partnership between Trellis and Callenwald and their creation of the Ability Garden. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Gardening can provide tremendous satisfaction for those who are in good physical condition. For those with challenges, gardening has not always been accessible. Even visiting some gardens can be difficult. Now, there is a community resource in Atlanta to change that situation. Here to tell us about the Ability Garden are Brooke Adams, the co-director of arts education and gallery director of Callenwald Fine Arts Center, along with the founder of of Trellis, Rachel Cochran, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. How did this partnership between your two organizations come about? I actually reached out to Trellis. Callenwald completed the restoration of a greenhouse on our campus in 2017. And we also received a fund called the Frank Barham Fund that specifically is to make the arts accessible for those with mental and physical disabilities. And with those two things, we saw Trellis as an amazing organization to partner with. 
and offer their horticultural therapy programming on our campus. Rachel, please tell us a bit about Trellis and how it got its start. Trellis is a 501c3 organization. It was founded at the end of 2017. So 2018 was really our first year of operation. So we're a fairly young nonprofit, but I feel like we're really breaking down barriers, so to speak, in the world of accessible gardening. Trellis has a co-founder. Her name is Wendy Battaglia, and Wendy currently works on a part-time basis at the Shepherd Center, working as a horticultural therapist with brain and spinal cord injury patients. So we are very, very well-versed in disability. I am a trained horticultural therapist, but I also had an experience in my family. My daughter, when she was 12, was hit by a car and she was seriously injured and has a traumatic brain injury, which causes lifelong injuries and challenges, but she is mobile. But I think it really took having that up close and personal experience with disability to really help me to fully understand the isolation and the hardships that come for people with impaired physical mobility or cognitive disability that, you know, getting out and participating in recreational, enjoyable activities and just being connected as a community is really a challenge. Can you tell us about the therapeutic quality of gardening being outdoors, being engaged with others, seeing plants and beauty around you. What further therapy is involved for those living with physical or cognitive disabilities that gardening can provide? I think the best thing to to give everyone an overview is that gardening is such a normalizing experience that pretty much everyone has some familiarity and comfort with, you know, outdoors and plants. Horticultural therapy focuses on goals. So there are treatment goals. And if you're in a clinical setting like Shepherd Center, the goal can be to, you know, use my hands again. And gardening has so much handwork where you're you know, holding a trowel or scooping soil or potting plants or holding a watering can. And also, if you are mobile but maybe are recovering from an injury, you can stand and walk and bend and stoop. So it's a wonderful, happy place to be if you're in a recovery scenario, like a rehab hospital. It's very powerful, the way people just become alive you know, when they're in a gardening scenario. Now, what makes up an ability garden? Well, Callenwald itself is just an incredible space. I mean, you go down the driveway, you feel like you're in another land. The trees are huge. The wildlife is running amok. There's a fox family and not to mention just the beauty of the home and and the old trees. But Callenwald is set up with a a beautiful glass greenhouse that has a wheelchair 
accessible pathway. And when we saw that, the you know, the lights clicked. We're like, this is the place. This is the place we've been looking for. And it's really been great because people, I won't say they're beating the doors down, but <laughs> everyone I run into sounds like, yes, this sounds exactly like what we need. So uh, the, the, our first clients was wonderful special ed students out of Inman Middle School. And they were right down the street from Callenwald and just a bus ride away. So we worked with the special ed teachers and we've done several sessions with them. The thing is, it's so easy because they really enjoy it. They love the plants. They love the freedom to walk and walk on the trails and be outside. What types of plants are you growing in the Ability Garden at Callenwald? Well, the funny thing about the Callenwald greenhouse is it was put in a couple years ago, but no one was actually grooming the space. They have a beautiful community garden in the back, but the front of it's a little ho-hum. So I said, you know, we got to make something happen out here. So I started in July building a, a native plant garden. And I love education. I love teaching people about plants. So what's in the native plant garden is, uh, you know, simple things, you know, marigolds and zinnias. And I put in some purple okra plants because they're very magnificent looking when they start growing. We have some grasses and uh, some herbs. You know, it's a work in progress, but I'm kind of a pseudo landscape designer. So I'm always looking at the period of Callenwald and what plants will go there and trying to keep it historically accurate. And, and the raised beds, of course, we love to grow vegetables because my kids, when you plant a sweet potato and they get to pull that thing up in, you know, four or five months when it's ready to be harvested, it's like, you know, digging for buried treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that raises a question. Gardening requires patience. I wondered how you provide the encouragement and the reward that may need to come sooner with some of your volunteers. <laughs> That's a very good question <laughs> because I was looking at the raised beds yesterday and we we have we do have a wonderful partnership. One of my grant partners is the Paideia School. And the Paideia School has their own growing operation. They have a tremendous urban agriculture program for their students. But part of it is a social justice initiative. And so Cal, uh, Paideia grows the plants for my trellis programs. And so I have farmer Aaron at the Paideia School who always has something ready for me. So if I feel like we need something more immediate with our groups instead of starting something from seed, then I have, I have those plants available. And we did, we just, we had planted greens and Swiss chard and, and romaine lettuce. And, you know, there they all, you stick them in and the kids are like, wow, this is great. <laughs> Do they ever eat with you? You know, they haven't yet. Uh, but Brooke, you know, Brooke, we might want to touch on the, the Callenwall Gala because that was, that was really something 
I've been very hesitant about doing um, virtual sessions with my clients because gardening is so hands-on and, you know, in my mind, I'm just like, you know, there's no way we can do virtual gardening sessions. But Kallenwald had a gala and Andrew Keenan, the executive director, thought it would be wonderful if the students could participate in some way and then we could share about the Ability Garden at the gala because I think some of the Kallenwald supporters really didn't know what was going on with the Ability Garden. So we worked with the florist, um, Faith Flowers, that Kallenwald uses for their events. And we honestly did a video on how to do floral arrangements. These were the centerpieces for the gala. And the teachers at um, Inman Middle delivered all the supplies to all the students. We did a Zoom session on floral arrangement that afternoon and picked them all up that day. And they honestly looked fantastic. Brooke, this is for you as well as Rachel. How do you hope to see the Ability Garden and other such programs related to it expand over the next few years? I think that this Ability Garden is sort of like a seed being planted at Cowanwald to really make all of our programs accessible. You know, we're in a historic campus, 100 years old. And the Frank Barham Fund and Trellis and this Ability Garden just sort of feel like the beginning of the next chapter for Callenwald to be more accessible in our programming and to offer therapeutic services such as this horticultural therapy. So the next chapter, I just see this flourishing. I see all of our grounds being more accessible. I see us doing more horticultural therapy across our campus, making a more sustainable campus. It's really exciting. I feel like this partnership is just the beginning of a whole new chapter at Cowanwald, and we're really excited about it. Brooke had a session with some artists about making some planter-type pottery for the garden so we can have a fusion of nature and art because it is an artist center. And... Um, we do a lot of nature art with, with our clients, which I love. We do press flower art. One of my dreams is some of the middle school students at Inman Middle graduated and went on to high school. And when you start growing plants, especially in a greenhouse, it requires a big personal commitment to take care of those plants and help them grow and become you know, a, an asset for our organization because I told Brooke, I said, I'm tired of buying plants. We're going to grow all our plants ourselves one day. Brooke Ellis is the co-arts education director for Callenwold Fine Arts Center and Rachel Cochran, co-founder of Trellis. More information about the Callenwold Ability Garden is on our website, webe.org slash city lights. In a moment, our producer Summer Evans shares an audio postcard from the city of Lawrenceville's ghost tour. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. As the Halloween holiday creeps up, we decided to send our producer, Summer Evans, on a ghost tour to the oldest city in the metro Atlanta area, Lawrenceville. She brought back this audio postcard. Everyone gathered down the stairs so you can all see my beautiful face as I reveal it to you. Hola, ¿cómo está, señorita? On the steps of Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville, about 30 minutes outside of the city, I'm greeted by our storyteller of the evening. She's a Hispanic woman dressed in full Mexican regalia with a small lantern in one hand. Okay, everyone, I know you're wondering who this beautiful Mexicana women disease. And my name is La Loca Lopez Perez. Perez goes on to tell us that she's in search of her handsome husband, Capitan Smith. She asks for our help to keep watch for him while we are exploring the historic city. We set out on our 90-minute tour under the bright moonlight and clear skies. The first story begins with how Lawrenceville got its name from Captain James Lawrence. Although he may never have stepped foot in Gwinnett County, he made a big impression due to his bravery. Captain Lawrence was one of the earliest officers in the U.S. Navy. During the Battle of 1812, he commanded the USS Chesapeake. And so there he is with his men in battle and uh, they shoot him right in the gut. After he falls to the ground, knowing death is near, he utters five infamous final words. Fire faster! <laughs> and don't give up the ship! <sighs> okay, so maybe not the fire faster part, but his quote, don't give up the ship, has gone on to be a popular naval battle cry and bumper sticker. After leaving the Boulder Creek Coffee House, we continue to different areas of the town square. Eventually, we stroll down what our guide calls the Honest Alley. The narrow road is between Lawrenceville Baptist Church and the back of several boutiques and restaurants. Perez tells us that some paranormal activity has occurred in a few of the shops over the years. One of those stories was about the strange disappearance of the Santa display at the shoemaker shop around Christmas time. The next morning, the Santa Claus was <laughs> right here in the back. So she starts to wonder, there is something going on because this happened one, two, three, four, five, seven. The owner thinks it must be teenagers. Maybe they're breaking into her shop and playing a prank. But then she gets an idea to set up a surveillance camera. And after several nights of monitoring the surveillance, she would see Santa Claus get up, no one around him, and ho, 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 ho him to the back. After spooky stories of scattered buttons and missing jewels, we wander down to the historic Lawrenceville Jail. Built in 1832, the small concrete building is currently situated adjacent to the Fleet Feet Sports Store and Caddy Corner to McRae's Tavern. You would have no idea this used to be a jail, occupied until the 1940s, I might add, if you were just passing it along the alleyway. 
The beige-colored jail has boarded up windows and a large metal door with a huge padlock hanging on the handle. Perez stops in front of the jail and begins to tell us the somber story of an enslaved man named Alec and his wife, Betsy. On October 10, 1848, Alec was with his beautiful wife, Betsy. They were in the house. They were going to have dinner when suddenly they hear the angry, furious voice of their master. So Alec and Betsy knew that he had been in the honest alley drinking the demon liquor. And they knew that he was furious and angry. And so they prepared them, they braced themselves. As the story goes, the master storms in drunkenly and he tries to take Betsy for himself. Alec intervenes and tells him, no, this is not going to happen. Infuriated, the master grabs his sword and begins to chase Alec throughout the house and property. Alec goes running, trying to get to his uh, loft. And as he closes the door, the wooden door, the master grabs and pulls it down. And they're fighting and they're struggling. We do not know how it happened, but we believe that the master slipped and fell to the ground and instantly died. Now, instead of running for his life and disappearing after this incident, Alec decides to go to the sheriff's office and tell them what happened, that this was all in self-defense. But... Having the status of a slave, the sheriff didn't believe that this was in self-defense. It's good to note that Alec was one of two slaves to ever go to trial in the courthouse in Lawrenceville. But, as you may guess, the odds were not in his favor, and justice was definitely not served that day. The courts found Alec to be guilty, and he was sentenced to be hanged. Alec was devastated that he was never going to see his beloved Betsy again, and as an attempt to flee, he started scraping away at the cell walls with a piece of metal. But, unfortunately, his plan was foiled. There was a woman passing by late at night, and she heard the scratching. The first thing she did, she told the sheriff what was going on here in the jail. The sheriff comes, opens the door, and is furious of what is going on. He's so angry, he chains Elik from the feet and the hands for three days and three nights, no food, no water, no sleep for three days, three nights. On November 11th, 1848, Alec was hanged. You are welcome to take the pictures, to take your flashlight out, but be mindful of the story. And Prez then pulls out the original key to the jail and asks us if we would like to go inside. While I'm waiting for my turn to walk inside, I asked the couple beside me why they wanted to join this ghost tour. This was a surprise for me. Yes. As of tomorrow, we will be married 27 years. This is so, our so happy this is anniversary. Kind of our anniversary <laughs> thing. Oh. Because we know how to celebrate. So. <laughs> but anyway. But I'm fascinated by paranormal things. And we've done tours like this in Europe. And we live in Snellville. So once so close to home, was, we had to see it. We all walk into the dark, ominous jail together. There are three jail cells less than about 100 square feet in size. Two metal bunks hang from the walls, and we peer into the bunk where Alec was detained. Prez tells us that there has been reports of visitors hearing someone sing or scratching on the walls. So I decide to ask her to close the jail door so we have complete silence. 
and I point my mic at Alec's former jail cell. Oh my Lord Jesus, they did not pay me enough. Thankfully, we hear nothing outside of the mumbling coming from the guest outside the jail. She opens the door and we continue with the tour. After an hour and a half, we end our journey at Aurora Theater's newly built facility, the Lawrenceville Arts Center. This spooky ghost tour is a great way to learn about Lawrenceville's history while also being entertained. City Lights producer Summer Evans. The Lawrenceville Ghost Tours are available through October 31st. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. at Latta Restaurateur Chef and popular TV actor Mitchell Anderson stops by. He'll tell us about his cabaret show, You Better Call Your Mother, coming to Synchronicity Theater November 4th through 7th. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.